Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden letter reaching down when the man comes around. All right, Johnny Cash, never a bad place to start. Um... Let me try to explain a little bit about what we're trying to do here. Uh, as I said before the news, there's a public health information crisis in this country in addition to the actual public health crisis, the actual pandemic, the virus which causes the disease. There's that, and that's bad enough. But really, a lot of the things that pass for communication have collapsed. Uh, you have a federal government where they have to quite a degree sidelined the CDC which is like the Roman Empire deciding not to use its legions during a major war. The CDC is really probably the, still the world's most elite army of public health officers, but somehow or other, uh, they've been told to shut up. Uh, Anthony Fauci's word uh, often goes contested. Um, you, you've got a, a president who often says things which are very misleading or very untrue. Uh, and people people just want to get information. <laughs> they have all kinds of things that they want to know. Uh, it's happening here at the state level as well. One of the things that is recommended by the CDC is that politicians not be the first face and first voice of pandemic communication. Um, it's uh, And the reason for that, obviously, is that a lot of people don't agree with whatever politician is in office. You know, maybe 40, 50 percent of them don't agree. So that's happened here in Connecticut. We have no public health commissioner. We have lost also the deputy health, public health commissioner during this crisis. There isn't really, you know, a solid medical science person who talks to the people of Connecticut every day and gives them the information they want. So we're doing what we can. <laughs> to fill in that rather large gap. Uh, so a little bit later on uh, the show today, uh, it's uh, you're going to uh, talk to or hear from an emergency room doctor who is also a public health professor. We're going to begin, though, as I confessed last week, I'm a total fanboy uh, of the podcast This Week in Virology. One of the uh, voices I've gotten to know is that of Brianne Barker, uh, who is an assistant professor of biology at Drew University and one of the co-hosts of This Week in Virology. Welcome to our show, uh, Professor Barker. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, and I will admit that before I was a co-host on TWIV, I was a fangirl myself. So oh, you're in wow. good company. Yeah, no, you're like uh, you're the person that Bruce Springsteen pulls up on stage and dances with. Uh, you, know, you, get, you get to join the band. All right. So um, I, I want to really harp a little bit on some of your specialties. And one of your specialties uh, is, in fact, vaccine development. This is something people are watching uh, very closely these days. People are hoping very much that uh, that it'll happen soon. Actually, before we get you talking, let's uh, begin with Tom Inglesby, director of the Center for Health Security at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, answering Chuck Todd's question about whether a 12 to 18 month timeline for vaccine is realistic. 
Well, uh, coming into this year, I would have said it was completely unrealistic, and I still think that there it is it is uh, far from a sure thing. But given that there's that there are now 110 vaccine projects going on around the world, that all the major vaccine companies in the world are are working on this in some way, and given that right. Tony Fauci and Monsef Slawi are now leading figures in the U.S. in this project, and they both believe it's possible, I think it is possible, but everything would have to break in the right way, and there are many ways that it might not work. So I don't think we should bank on it, but we should hold out some level of hope that if everything goes in the right direction, we could possibly be see, see vaccine by the end of the year. So one of the rules of public health communication, as I understand it, is don't overpromise, don't overreassure. Uh, and, and we've got things like, for example, today, uh, reports that the UK could r- roll out 30 million doses of a COVID-19 vaccine as early as September. This is coming from the British government. Um, you know a lot more than I do about that particular vaccine, but maybe just in just generally, how about that idea of don't overpromise? Well, we certainly don't want to overpromise, um, but there are some reasons for optimism. Um, there are also some reasons uh, that we need to, you know, sort of slow things down a little bit. The fastest ever vaccine uh, that we have made from sort of starting from scratch until having a vaccine took four years, which was with the mumps vaccine. However, every year we make a new flu vaccine. Um, where we learn about a particular flu strain and have a new vaccine in about 10 months. And that's possible because we have an infrastructure ready to make the flu vaccine. Once we know which flu strain to go with, everything else is all set up. Um, And what we're sort of taking advantage of in a few cases is that there have been some earlier trials of some new vaccine technologies that have allowed some groups to go really quickly in their setup. Um, So there are a couple of uh, vaccine groups that are pretty far ahead of some of the others, and they've had some very encouraging results that have come out in the past week or so. Um, If one of those vaccines were to ultimately be a perfect success, then we could have them out within a few months. Um, and so that's a big part of why there is so much optimism. I think that um, part of the promising versus overpromising versus underpromising is that we're trying to uh, help people think about how this might tie into um, some of the other measures like staying at home. Um, we want to give them some hope that staying at home is not going to happen forever and ever. Right. So without getting too twivy, um, (laughs) which is to say, uh, without getting into areas where our listeners are not going to necessarily understand, I'd like to maybe just kind of run through some of the vaccine technologies. And I think one way to prevent it from getting too twivy is I will tell you my peasant's uh, understanding uh, of something and then you will set me straight. Uh, Perfect. Okay. So um, one of the kinds of vaccines and these, I think, as I understand it, are kind of in that area that are maybe a little bit cheaper and faster to scale up are so-called mRNA vaccines. That's like the one Moderna has in trials. This is Mm -hmm. kind of like a boy who cries wolf vaccine, right? It kind of runs into your system and goes, hey, hey, there's an antigen, when there really isn't an antigen. There isn't even a chemically deactivated version of the virus like the 
original gangster uh, vaccines that I took uh, as a kid. Um, this is this is just making the body get ready in the presence of kind of almost nothing, right? Yes. So if if anything, um, you aren't even quite the boy who cries wolf. It's more of um, a note that the boy wrote that could be used to cry wolf. Um, so the mess. So this is just using a message um, that could make some of the proteins from the virus um, and allow your body to make a response. Um, this has been an idea that has been in in sort of the fields for vaccines for um, many years. Um, this has been very successful in animal models against some other coronaviruses, but this would be the first mRNA vaccine um, that uh, made it into um, human uh, use. Um, in fact, they had some data that came out earlier uh, today. Actually, it was in the past 24 hours. I don't know if it was today or yesterday at this point. Um, that said that their vaccine was very, very effective in their first set of patients. Um, if we could get this working, then this could mean that we would have lots, the ability to make lots of mRNA vaccines really quickly, and that would be useful in future pandemics just like this one. Right. So uh, now let's move on to what the so-called Oxford vaccine. That's the one that the UK is talking about. AstraZeneca is involved in this, along with the Jenner mm -hmm. Institute at Oxford. This is a different kind of genetically engineered virus, right? It's a, they call it an, yes. an adenoviral vector. And they're kind of the cool kid at school right now. But they have a somewhat checkered past, including a Merck project during the HIV era that didn't halt HIV and maybe even was making it worse. This is more... Yeah, that's the boy who, a whole fiasco. <laughs> that's a whole fiasco. Okay, so yeah. these are not so much the boy who cried wolf, in my way of thinking, as the Trojan horse. They kind of sneak mm -hmm. a spike pro protein from SARS-CoV-2 into our body so that our cells can learn how to defeat the real thing. Okay, how close was I on that one? That's pretty good. So what they do is they take a take another... Uh, virus that doesn't really cause us any harm. And just like you said, um, use it as a Trojan horse to sneak in the spike protein. Um, and then your immune system gets a little bit of experience um, trying to respond to kind of a quote unquote real viral infection um, when it's making it that response. This sort of uh, technique was also something that we had thought about in the field for a really long time. And the first ever vaccine using this technology was approved for use in humans um, during the 2014 Ebola outbreak. And so the Ebola outbreak um, that we, uh, the Ebola vaccine that we have um, uses a conceptually similar approach. All right. Uh, now I, I talked about the OG uh, vaccines. I'm a mm -hmm. boomer. So so there's a vaccine, for example, from Sinovac, which is a Beijing based uh, privately held company. Uh, and it is a chemically inactivated version of SARS-CoV-2. It seems to work in monkeys. Uh, and this is sort of closer to what I grew up watching uh, health class films about. Right. This is sort of what immunization yep. was for a long time. Yes. Yeah, so. Um there is a polio vaccine that's made this way. There's an influenza vaccine that's made this way. Many of the vaccines that you have received are um, inactivated vaccines. So uh, we use a version of the virus that is, we'll say dead. We'll get, we'll stay away from that virologist argument as well. Mm. Um, but it's a virus that can't replicate. Right. Um, yeah. 
So, I mean, I, I don't know if there's an, an, a fourth technology you want to talk about. And, and I guess I, I'm also wary of asking you this question, but I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> um, I mean, do you see any, do you have a particular horse that you like in the horse race? Is there a particular kind of technology you think is most likely to cross the finish line first? Um, I think in some ways I'm really hopeful about the Moderna mRNA vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um the data that I've seen with from that one was actually data looking at immune responses in patients. Um, and it was quite uh, good. They looked great. Um, they looked like immune responses that we see in people who actually are infected with this virus. And if we were to get to the point where um, we could start making more vaccines using this technology. It would be fantastic for infectious disease in general. We'd be able to sort of start cranking out vaccines with a lot for a lot of different viruses if we could get this technology working. So my hope is we get that one. Now, um, being a fan of Masters of Twiv, I um, <laughs> I know that sci- in the scientific community, you people, y'all know each other, you know, and everybody knows people. I mean, not just in the same country, but internationally, mm-hmm. you know, who's a good karaoke singer because you were at a conference together, yep. that kind of stuff. So um, so that's great, although it doesn't necessarily look as though all of the nation states themselves have the same level of camaraderie. So we've got the EU drafting a resolution today calling for international cooperation at the World Health Assembly. You know, there was this thing in Brussels a couple of weeks ago that the U.S. You know, declined to show up at. But it, it it is a little worrisome, I guess, for those of us who obviously it looks like the U.K. plans to go first with the stuff from the Jenner Institute. I don't know how soon the rest of the world gets it. Uh, I don't know what would happen with the Sinovac um, uh, vaccine, but but I'm guessing it might be distributed in, in China first. I mean, there's a way in which the international cooperation that you folks exhibit, I, I don't know, does it, does it filter out to the commercial side and the governmental side? You know, I really hope so. Um, unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately for some reasons, uh, we have different sort of regulatory structures that allow some of these products to be used or not used. So, um, before any of the products made in other countries would be used here, we would have to have FDA approval. So that would be somewhat sort of up to the FDA in terms of what they want to approve. The FDA usually has a pretty high bar, somewhat higher than some other countries for approval. Um, But I certainly do think that we have to remember here that viruses do not respect international borders. And we need to make sure that we are sharing as much information and technology as we can so that we can stop this uh, pathogen. Right. If anybody has a virus problem, everybody has a virus problem. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a tremendous incentive uh, to, to do this. All right. So w- I know your time is limited. I'm going to jump from uh, uh, vaccines and immunology to um, responses of the, bi- of the immune system to viral infection, which is another area of major right. expertise for you, Brianne Barker, our guest right yes. now. So one of the things that we're hearing a lot of is a, about the so-called downstream effects uh, of this virus, uh, of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So it 
it gets in the body, it produces a disease we call COVID-19. But sometimes, as I understand it, even after the body has cleared the virus, in other words, if you give that person a PCR test, they won't test positive anymore for the virus. There's just a lot of things going on in the body, a lot of things that nobody could have predicted, nobody could have anticipated, things whose narratives seem to change from week to week, even among the most uh, careful uh, investigators in, in the medical and clinical world. Um, one of the things we're hearing about right now is this kind of hyperinflammatory response in children. Uh, this is, you know, some of the early thoughts were that maybe kids would get to skip this whole thing or almost skip the whole process of COVID-19. But they seem to be, in some cases, vulnerable to this specific kind of downstream effect? Maybe you can say more about it. Absolutely. So when we look at adults who are infected, um, right now it sort of looks like there are three phases to the disease. In the beginning, it looks like the virus is causing some damage to their lungs. Um, but then afterwards, we see the immune system overreacting and we see too much inflammation. Uh, some people may have heard of something called the cytokine storm, where the immune response is sort of this big overreaction. And that's actually something that is related to what I'm looking at in my lab in terms of how other viruses can cause some cytokine storm. Um, and then this virus also seems to have this third phase where things like blood clotting and coagulation and wound repair processes are going wrong. Um, and how that might be linked to inflammation is super interesting. Um, but now what we're seeing is that there are some kids who are infected and don't seem to have that first part where the virus is causing disease. Instead, they really seem to have um, too much inflammation. And this has been seen with a few different infectious diseases in kids before. Um, one of them is a case where some kids are infected with a staphylococcus, a bacteria, um, and then get this weird uh, inflammatory syndrome called Kawasaki disease. And more and more uh, children who have been infected with SARS-CoV-2 are showing up with some inflammatory uh, symptoms that look pretty similar to Kawasaki disease. Uh, right now, we're in a phase that uh, the more physicians start looking for this, the more they're finding it. And as people start publishing, other doctors say, hey, I've seen that too. Um, so it, this seems to be a pretty widespread phenomenon. Uh, we've never really understood it in the other cases where we've seen it, but we know that trying to reduce the inflammation in these patients is probably going to be really key. Right. So, I mean, it's, first of all, it just, one of the insane things about this disease, I suppose every emergent disease, every novel virus essentially opens a medical school where everybody tries to learn about it, but in real yeah. time, you know, so there's, exactly. so COVID-19 is having its own medical school and everybody's trying to figure it out. Uh, and it's just, it, it, I have to say, my hat is off to you guys and to the clinicians. The, the fact that you have figured out as many things under such duress and under such time pressure amazes me. Every time I listen to the to Twiv and to Daniel Griffin, who's kind of the major clinician who comes on and talks, I think, wow, doctors are just amazing. So 
it, what you were just saying is kind of like the way I understand it is clinicians almost have to toggle away from their original strategy, which is I hope the immune system can do its job, right? That's what you hope at first exactly. uh, if, some, if somebody has the virus to almost a 180 degree opposite. How do we stop the immune system from doing its job? Because it's doing its job, you know, on steroids right now. Not literally on steroids. That was a confusing way to put it. But because um, <laughs> <laughs> steroids actually are involved in treatment right. sometimes. Well, but uh, and, but and it, yeah, it's doing its job too well, right? Yeah, and that's sort of exactly the challenge um, because uh, physicians have to realize that maybe during the first part of the infection, they don't want to turn off the immune system. The immune system is helpful in getting rid of the virus. But in the second part, then they need to turn the immune system off. And so trying to understand these phases and how to treat patients differently in those phases has been a really big issue. Um, as far as what you were saying about the um, speed with which things are happening, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is the movie Contagion, mm -hmm. which I think most people in the infectious disease field have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with. <laughs> um, one of my feelings about Contagion has always been that they tell us what day different things are happening on. And mm -hmm. sometimes I say, boy, I wish we could really do science that fast. That's, that's impressive. Um, that's been sort of the joke among many of my colleagues is could someone actually figure some of those things out as quickly as they did in that movie? And we are doing some things at contagion speed um, now, which is fantastic for the scientific community, but a little bit of a challenge for those of us who are science communicators, because it's hard to answer so many questions with we're still working that out. We're still trying to figure it out because we're communicating this information to the public almost immediately after uh, we learn it. Right. And, and yeah, and th this has kind of led to sort of good, bad things. For example, and I think uh, Vincent Racaniello, who was on this show last week, uh, I think on a recent episode with you guys, he was saying that, you know, one of the things that happened is happening now is that journals like Cell, you know, are suspending some of their peer review requirements and sort of getting papers that are really pre-publication papers in front of people be for the reason that you're saying, because people want to know and clinicians need to know anything that could conceivably be useful. But there's an obvious downside of that too, right? This has been such right. a moving target. Today's yes is tomorrow's no. Exactly. So um, there is something called BioArchive. Um, it's spelled B-I-O-R-X-I-V. Um, and it is a place where scientists are able to post their papers before they've gone through peer review online so that anyone can read them. Um, there is a similar site called MedArchive that started as well. Um, and this can be really useful in speeding up the process and allowing scientists to see one another's data. Um, you can sort of imagine that, you know, I might be able to sort of review a paper myself as a peer um, before that peer review is going on. This became a big deal during Zika when some of the clinical data needed to be getting out really quickly. But right now, people are putting all sorts of things on those preprint servers um, that are getting picked up in the media um, and that people are having a little bit of difficulty evaluating. Um, so we're not getting to see some of the results of um, really thoughtful peer review. Um, we certainly need this uh, speed. We need to make sure that we're getting information to uh, physicians to treat them as quickly as possible. Um, but I think everyone does need to take the data they're seeing with uh, a mountain of salt.
Right. I mean, we who are suddenly hung- hungry for scientific information are not necessarily scientifically literate. We always often don't understand what we're reading. And yeah, that thirst for information. Well, I'm, the New York Times Sunday Magazine just did a big piece yesterday on Didier Rual, the guy who really kind of uh, uh, introduced this whole uh, hydroxychloroquine uh, idea, ah, yes. which was then <laughs> doubled down on by the president and Sean Hannity and all these people. And it really doesn't take very long to get a, a dangerous and unproductive an unhelpful idea in wide circulation. Right, exactly. And so, you know, I think that we all need to look really carefully and use this as a chance to um, practice our skills in thinking about not just do I like this information? Is it exciting that we have a potential cure? But thinking about where is that information coming from? How can we know that it's true? Um, And, you know, I think this is a place where a lot of us scientists really need to step up um, and get in contact with the public and start talking about these things and explaining uh, what we know. Right. So with that, I'm going to end by saying one solution for me has been uh, to listen to This Week in Virology, uh, which is a terrific show. The co-host, uh, Brianne Barker, is with us right now. She's an associate professor of biology at Drew University. Sometimes it will go over your head what they're talking about. <laughs> or you might not get a joke that's based on 229E or something like that. But um, right. But if you stay with it, you're going to get a lot of really good information. You're going to feel like you, you do know something. And, these are the and, people. and if you don't get it, write us a letter That's and right. we would love to try to break it down further. Right. They're very, very interactive and they could explain almost anything. All right. Thanks very much for doing this today. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to continue on with this thing I started out talking about. There's just a huge communication gap in the public health part of this equation. It's bad enough we have... Uh, a novel virus causing a terrible disease, but we also are not getting enough information about it. We're back. Uh, now joining us uh, is Liana, excuse, excuse me, Lena Wen, uh, an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University. She previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner and is a contributing columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, Lena Wen, thanks for joining us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Um, I'd like to begin by kind of reiterating a premise I, I started with at the beginning of this episode, which is that there is a communication problem that, you know, the CDC has this whole chapter uh, of their epidemiology manual that's all about communication. It has all these best practices, all these rules, things that really work, things that don't work. And and it seems like, unfortunately, just because of the way the federal government is politically constructed right now and in a way that's filtering down to states like the one where we live in Connecticut, you know, we're getting a lot of very muddled information. It's often not coming from scientists and people are left in a position where they really feel as though they don't know in a completely trustworthy way things that they need or want to know. I mean, maybe you can comment on that a little bit. Sure. So this is a new virus. And as a result, there is constantly changing information. There's new research being done all the time, as your last um, as your last expert was talking about. And that's the nature 
of a pandemic. That's the nature of a new virus. I think people understand that there's a lot that we know, there's a lot that we don't know. But we need to have a central source of information that we really trust. This is actually what the CDC does. The CDC in past outbreaks, that's always been the source of information that we trust. We know that the CDC synthesizes the clinical guidance, looks at the research that's being done, and then also provides very specific information for people, for businesses, for clinicians. And unfortunately, that is missing right now. What, you know, during past outbreaks of Zika, um, when I had, when I faced issues of measles in, in Baltimore and outbreaks of other illnesses, Ebola, uh, as an example, we always looked to the CDC. I consulted the CDC website multiple times a day um, for something like COVID-19. We need for the CDC to provide exact guidance on, for example, not just saying we they encourage social distancing, but how far apart should desks be at school? Are there certain things that are certain activities that are allowed and are not allowed? Um, is it that kids um, can no longer eat lunches in the schoolrooms that they have to be eat, they have to eat lunch at their desk? For restaurants, should there be partitions? Should tables be exactly how many feet apart? Should certain cleaning protocols and ventilation systems be checked in a certain way? That's the kind of very specific guidance that we need because frankly, there is risk associated with reopening, but we need to be reducing that risk as much as possible. And that's the kind of information that CDC um, provides not only for people in this country, but actually for people around the world too. Right. And one of the things that makes this pandemic a little bit different or maybe a lot different from its predecessors is, I mean, its pervasiveness and its lethality and its perniciousness has caused this huge amount of economic turmoil. And so now we have this scenario where states are attempting to reopen even as new cases are emerging uh, and uh, and different value sets seem to be in conflict. So I'll give you a tiny little example from Connecticut that's sort of ridiculous, but but good. So on Wednesday, one of the few things that are, is going to reopen in Connecticut are hair salons. And initially, the state said, you can have your hair salon and you can do things a certain way, but you can't use blow dryers. And then, and which actually, when you think about aerosolizing something, and you know, I mean, it may be not a great idea to have something blowing at high velocity uh, in a situation where there might be droplets in the air. Um, and people really complained a lot and said that it was not fair. And they said certain kinds of people rely on having their hair blow dried. And, and so the thing was reversed. And as far as I could tell, it was reversed because people didn't like it and because you know, a different set of values got kicked in other than just what's the best practice in the public health field. Well, there's also issues of economic development and Department of Labor issues. You know, everything else kind of jumbles in there. And and I think that's a maybe a microcosm for what we're seeing all across the country right now. Decisions getting made, not necessarily because they're medically good decisions. Right. And again, this is why that CDC very specific guidance is going to be important. Now, I think people understand that the guidance is evolving, that based on new research, there may be changes, but there should still be guidance because, frankly, businesses are going to be open anyway. So we might as well do it in the safest way that's possible. And I think businesses want cover as well. They want to be able to say, I'm following the best evidence and I'm following the federal guidelines and I'm doing this. You know, I've, I myself have had um, calls from 
restaurants, from um, big companies, from museum and gallery owners just who just want to know, you know, how what is it that we can do safely? Should we open only our outdoor exhibits first? Um, should we limit the amount of time or the number of people who can be in an exhibit in a particular space at one point in time? Should we do staggered shifts at work? I mean, these are really practical um, information that we need the answers to. And I think that people are in the absence of that kind of federal coordinated action in the way that we would expect. I think states and local officials have stepped up to the best of their abilities. But frankly, we are, um, this is not ideal. We really should have the federal government guidance in something of this importance. Right. So probably the dominant idea uh, in March and April in states that were concerned about this uh, was social distancing. And I, I am a person who has practiced social distancing. I literally have not been inside a building uh, other than my house since early March. Um, I go outside in the woods to walk my dog. Uh, that's about it. Last week, I took my heart in my hands and I got my oil changed. And it's a situation where I sit in the car with the window rolled most of the way up in kind of open-ended garages. And that terrified me. I had a mask on. I had gloves. I was still just completely worried. But one of the things that you're noticing is that we seem to be moving away from social distancing and, and more towards a concept that you might call harm reduction. Explain this. Well, um, I, let me clarify and say that social distancing is still very much a part of what we should be doing now. Um, rather that... Um, there, the strategy that the U.S. had embarked on before, as I understand, was that we use this blunt instrument, right? Social distancing and shutting down our economy is really a blunt instrument. It's what you have to do when you have no other option. And the idea was that we would shut down our economy until the point that we could reduce the number of infections and we develop the public health infrastructure, the testing, the contact tracing, the isolation in order to contain the infection so that we can identify each new infection, stop it from spreading, and then we can apply these specific surgical instruments, if you will, not shutting down everyone, but identifying only those individuals who are affected. That's the strategy that I understood we had embarked upon. That's why people gave up so much and were willing to tolerate the loss of, of their livelihoods in many cases in order to get to that containment phase. But we have not gotten there. We've gotten most of the way there, part of the way there. But we are not there and we are reopening despite not having the capabilities in place. And therefore, what I'm saying is that the U.S. should just admit that we are not aiming for that containment strategy anymore, that we are basically saying we know what it takes to get there, but we're choosing not to do it anyway. And as a result, we should just admit that what we are now in is a strategy of harm reduction, which is understanding that what we're engaging in has risk. We're going to do it anyway. So let's at least try to reduce the risk as much as we can. That includes continuing to practice social distancing where we can. So individuals may have to go to work, may have to go back to work, and that's necessary. But are there things that they can still do at work to be as safe as they can? Staggered shifts, um, deep cleaning protocols at work, um, not having canteens and um, and shared spaces, but rather having desks spaced apart. I mean, there are still all these harm reduction 
action uh, mitigation strategies that we can be using. And I think part of that also includes understanding that risk is cumulative. So you may have to go to work, but that doesn't mean that you now need to be having dinner parties and play dates with your friends and your kids' friends. Um, that there are, we should take the risks that we have to take, but still try to reduce it in other ways. And I wrote the, um, the, the article in the Washington Post for that reason to say, look, let's just admit that we are in a different phase than where we are, but let's do everything we can to reduce the risk to each other because we still have to protect ourselves and our loved ones and our communities. So one of the things that was there as in that initial covenant that you understood existed, that many people uh, uh, understood existed, that if we practiced um, social distancing for a while, this tremendous public health apparatus would gear up and get ready to deal with it. And uh, Ashish Jha from Har Harvard Global Health uh, Initiative talks about testing and how every test you do buys you a tiny little bit more freedom. So testing is so much the key to this. Uh, I'm here in Connecticut, which is a relatively small state. Uh, Harvard Global Health Initiative's estimate is that we need to do 30,000 um, 30, tests a day, um, or 29,800 if you want to be exact. And we're currently fluctuating between six and 9,000 tests a day. We are about to reopen uh, some things on Wednesday. And, and you know, I mean, there are other benchmarks for how to know whether you're doing testing well enough. The WHO says if, you're, if your positives are coming back at a higher rate than 10%, that probably means you're not testing in a way where you're going to be able to capture uh, the outliers, the guy at the oil change place that's infest infecting a bunch of people or, or, or whatever, uh, that you're probably skewing it towards people who are symptomatic and frontline workers and people like that who all do need to be tested. So we we're not testing. <laughs> we don't we don't have a mass testing program. And and I think as you were suggesting a few seconds ago, that was kind of the linchpin for the idea of yes, we'll stop doing social distancing and then we'll test everybody and we'll pull the people who are positive out of line and get them out of the infection spectrum. So what happened? Well, sure. So let me let me just be cl clear on one point, though. We're not stopping social distancing. Nobody should be stopping social right. distancing, right? Social distancing is still one of the most powerful public health tools that we have. So when we're outside, we should still be doing social distancing. We should still be practicing it to the best of our ability. What we're stopping is the shelter in place orders, right? That most states now, 48 states have announced reopening in some way, but reopening does not mean that we should stop social distancing. In fact, we should keep that up just as uh, along with hand hygiene yes. and these other public health practices. So just to, to, to clarify, but we are lifting these shelter-in-place, stay-at-home orders in um, in the vast majority of our states. And the whole idea that we had these orders, again, as you were saying, is that we should be ramping up the rest of our capacity. People should be able to get a test when they need it. Um, we should be able to get testing the same way that the White House has testing. I mean, the White House is testing um, the individuals who are around President Trump and Vice President Pence every day. And that's because they want to provide our elected officials with the peace of mind, the reassurance that they're not going to get infected. Now, of course, there is a risk of a false negative and some patients, some people may still slip through the cracks who actually have COVID-19 but just did not test positive. But you can see that that type of mass testing provides the reassurance for people and may be necessary for us to get back to work and get back to school. 
we don't have anything nearly like that right now, but we're reopening anyway. And so we're taking a risk. And so let's at least do everything we can to reduce the risk as, as much as we can. I mean, uh, the problem is, obviously is that this disease has its own timeline uh, and its timeline doesn't work all that well up against this kind of reopening strategy the way that I would understand it anyway in the sense that you can change some of your regulations and you can start opening up hair salons or you know, outdoor seating in restaurants or you know other kinds of public gatherings while trying to maintain the social distancing but but sending more people back to work and the problem is you're probably not going to know how big a mistake that was or what the harm was for what maybe two or three weeks right it, it, it you will be doing something you could be doing something very harmful and very ill-considered and not know about it for quite a while that's exactly right that there is a significant time lag because the incubation period the time between exposure and when you have symptoms is up to 14 days and then there could be another lag of time between when you develop symptoms and when you get very ill and need to go to the hospital and unfortunately if people succumb to the illness and die that's another week or two after they get to the hospital too so I do fear that people are drawing the wrong lessons from reopening. They're looking at states that have reopened and, and are saying, well, it's not that bad. Nothing terrible has happened yet. Well, nothing terrible has happened yet because we haven't picked up on it yet. And by the time we do see a surge, in a way, the horse will have left the barn because that means that there will be an outbreak that is going to threaten the capacity of our hospitals that may be undetected because of the few tests that we're doing. And I'm afraid that we're going to see New York style outbreaks in many communities around the country, including some communities in rural areas that don't have existing um, healthcare capacity um, that's, that's, that's robust and could easily be overwhelmed. All right. So just a few uh, warnings from uh, Lena Wen's uh, articles. Uh, just because you can go now go out in public doesn't mean you should. Still stay, stay six feet away from people. Wash your hands frequently. Wipe down surfaces that others are touching. Uh, ask your employer what practices are being put into place to protect workers and customers. Inquire about telecommuting and staggered uh, shifts. Wear a mask when in public. And this is really key, I think, uh, and something I hadn't really talked about it all so far on the show. Keep a daily diary of where you've been and with whom you spent time. That way, if you do test positive, it'd be easier to do the contact tracing. Um, Lena Wen, thank you so much for spending time with us. Of course. Thank you very much. So we're going to take a little break here, and I'm, uh, I am try to save a little bit of time at the end so that you, know, you can call in and maybe talk about what you're worried about or where you feel your knowledge gaps are, how you envision your summer. What is it that you still don't understand? I think a lot of people are living in this kind of why don't I know that thing place. All right, so um, we're gonna take a break. Let me uh, tell you what number to call during the break. It's 
Hi, this is Colin, and we are taking some calls when you can talk about some of the things you feel like you wish you knew more about, wish you understood better, um, are worried about. Give us a call at 1-888-720-9677. That's 1-888-720-9677. Do so now, because we will run out of, out of time on this show very quickly, alas. I have to thank uh, Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio uh, making everything hum. Uh, she is the reason that we can work remotely, so we are very very grateful to that or for that. And uh, then Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of the Colin McEnroe show and producer of this particular episode. Thank you so much. We have some interesting other shows coming up this week on Wednesday. We will do a show about masks, everything about masks. Uh, we have some really interesting guests booked for that. Uh, and it looks like at the end of the week, uh, my old friend David Edelstein, the film critic, is going to come on and we're going to have just sort of a two person nose where we talk back and forth about movies and culture in this troubling time. All right. Uh, calls coming in here. We're going to go to Lori from Gales Ferry. You're on the air. Hi, Lori. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, the thing, the thing I don't understand still is is outside and how many people could you get together outside if you stay six feet apart and have masks on? That's a really good question, and, and I, I don't pretend to be able to answer all these questions. I think it is the kind of question that people are confused about right now. Um, you know, I mean, in general, and I do a ton of reading about this, and I do spend a lot of time, listen, time listening to things like this week in, in virology. I mean, what you're describing right now seems like a pretty good practice. In other words, you, the people are going to wear masks. Uh, they're going to be uh, six feet at least apart. Uh, ideally, you're going to be out in the sunshine. Uh, sunshine is good. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I would imagine that as long as you're not planning to have 20 people over and they're going to be wandering around and kind of venturing out of those circles of safety and getting careless and taking their masks off and putting them back on, you know, that you know, that it's a it's a safer thing to do. I will tell you that personally, I am outdoors a lot. If I'm out in the woods, I, I think that I don't have to wear a mask because I think I'm not going to run into people. But the truth is, occasionally that you, you do. And, you know, you try to stay more than six feet away if you possibly can. But um, I, I think I, I agree that's a great question. I don't know that I have a, a solid answer for it. Yeah, well. Oh, sorry, didn't mean to cut her off. I wasn't sure she was going to say anything more. All right, I should keep going anyway. Mark from Brantford. Hi, Mark. Uh, you've got a question Hi. or a comment. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Uh, what are we going to do with the kids that have not been able to go away to sleepaway camp? Um, all of a sudden, whole camp systems have shut down. And now we have these kids at home uh, in the same pressure cookers with their parents. The parents need respite. The kids need a break. And what are we doing to address the mental and emotional health of those kids? Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's going to be more guidance coming on camps. And I think here in Connecticut, we're getting guidance, more guidance this week uh, on camps and whether any kind of camp uh, can reopen. But yeah, it, it's a huge problem. And I think the other thing that complicates it is what got discussed in the first segment of the show today, which is that children are not uh, as safe from this disease as, as had been suggested early on in the process. You certainly want to get kids outside and socializing and 
and active, but you also don't want to put them in a position. I mean, the, the, the manifestation of this downstream, late stage, hyperinflammatory disorder, it is not for fooling around. You know, it, it is uh, for the kids who've gotten it. Uh, there have been deaths. There tend not to be that many deaths, but really, really, really sick kids. So, I mean, rushing kids back into any non-socially distanced situation is probably a pretty bad idea right now. All right, here's Henry in Simsbury. Hi, Henry. Good afternoon. How are you? Good. How are you? Very well. Thank you very much. I've been listening to your show. Uh, I am an emergency physician. I've been in the front line battling this disease and watching it behave in ways that are very, very erratic, mm -hmm. unpredictable. And I think there's a very important comment I'd like to make, in addition to the conversation that's been going on, is that no one is really immune to this disease. No right. one. So everyone is susceptible to getting this disease. And yes, there are risk factors that raises your mortality rate from this disease. But the idea that individuals are safe is really a wrong idea. Everyone should know that if they have not had it and they're out there not using social distancing and wearing their mask and mitigating um, the, the, the process, they most likely will get the disease, and some of them will not even know they have it and still be infectious. Right. This virus has outsmarted us. Right. And, and the other part of it is, though, some of them can be 30 years old and marathon runners and get a really severe expression of this disease where they are hospitalized for days and days and days. The notion that if you have no comorbidities, you know, if you're younger, you, the, the, the most you're going to get is a mild set of symptoms. That does that is not universally true from what I can see. You could be in the pink of health and relatively young and, and get a very severe expression that puts Put you right up against death's door. We only have about 30 seconds, but go ahead if you want to say something. I'm sorry, one more thing. I totally agree with you. I have seen personally young, healthy, 30-year-old individuals die in a few days, and I've seen 89-year-olds with multiple comorbidities, including having battled through cancer, live through this uh, horrendous disease. You're right. It is, a, it is, as you were saying, a very weird disease. Uh, all right. We have to go. Thank you, Henry. Thank you so much for what you're doing. There's no way we can repay the debt. And thank you, all of you healthcare workers. You know, I think, uh, how grateful we really are. And thanks to my team and thanks to you for listening. Follow Connecticut Public.